0: Welcome. I'm Keith Whittington. I'm Associate Professor of Politics here at Princeton, as well as the Acting Director this year of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. It is my very great pleasure to welcome you to the fifth annual Walter F. Murphy Lecture in American Constitutionalism. Um, Walter Murphy was, for many years, um, a very distinguished professor here in the Politics Department of American Constitutionalism, judicial politics, American politics uh, broadly. Uh, We're very happy that Walter is able to make it back um, to be with us again this year as he has the last few years um, to enjoy uh, the Walter Murphy uh, Lecture. Um, And we're also very pleased um, to welcome this year's uh, lecturer to the Walter Murphy Lecture Series. Uh, Gary Jeffrey Jacobson is the Patterson Bannister Professor of Government and the H. Malcolm McDonald Professor of Constitutional and Comparative Law at the University of Texas at Austin, a recent post for him, uh, recently at Williams College for many years, uh, where he developed uh, quite the distinguished reputation before he decamped uh, for warmer climates. Um, Gary is a very distinguished uh, scholar of American constitutional thought, um, as well as comparative law and comparative constitutionalism. Uh, His most recent um, book, uh, if I can find the correct uh, title, because I wouldn't want to mess it up, and there have been more than one title over time as he was working on this project, The Wheel of Law, uh, India's Secularism and Comparative Constitutional Context, uh, which is an excellent work um, of comparative constitutionalism focusing on themes of religious liberty, uh, recently published uh, by Princeton University Press, and I understand uh, now in paperback. um, So uh, easily available at a low, low price. Um, Today, however, he will be speaking... Um, On a topic that's very dear um, to Walter's own thought, Walter has contributed uh, work uh, along these lines, and and I look forward uh, to hearing what Professor Jacobson has to say um, on the topic of, by way of variation, addition, or repeal, revisiting the unconstitutional amendment puzzle. Gary Jacobson.
1: Thank you. This is a – I apologize at the outset of a longish talk, but uh, I will not deliver it in my newly acquired Southern uh, accent. So I'll revert to my native New Yorkese, actually, which uh, will shave at least three minutes um, <laughs> uh, off the talk. I'm sure uh, you'll all appreciate it. Uh, Unlike others who have been honored uh, to deliver this lecture, I have no formal connections to this place, and my contacts with Walter Murphy have been all too incidental, limited mainly to occasional correspondence in which Walter has generously encouraged me in my work or solicited me for a citation. But my debt to him is very considerable. His path-breaking work in comparative constitutionalism has instructed and inspired me, And today I want to acknowledge that debt by speaking on a subject about which he has had much to say, the problem of the unconstitutional constitutional amendment. Given Walters' passionate intellectual engagement with the nature and dilemmas of constitutionalism, his interest in the issue is very understandable. Constitutionalism is about limits and aspirations, whether there are implicit substantive constraints on formal constitutional change is a question that implicates our most basic intuitions, but also our most troubling uncertainties about constitutions. Perhaps the critical moment in the design of constitutional arrangements occurs when drafters confront the vexed issue of how much freedom to extend to subsequent amenders of their handiwork. Should the later agents of change enjoy an equivalent status to that of the architects of original design, such that the creations of both would be similarly immune from assaults upon their legitimacy. Surely there are things that should not be done through the invocation of constitutional language. And yet, if these things are so horrible to contemplate, much less to integrate with our sense of what it means to live constitutionally, then a known solution exists. Prohibit them from happening by explicitly making them illegal through the power of amendment. We may think there are things worse than altering representation in the Senate, but inasmuch as these things were not textually designated untouchable by the founders, can we not sympathize with those, and they include most commentators on the subject, who find the idea of an implicitly unconstitutional constitutional amendment deeply problematic, to say nothing of hopelessly circular. Today I will contend that we should view that idea sympathetically, but the importance of the issue to the theory of constitutional democracy and sometimes its practice requires that we retain a healthy skepticism towards arguments that might be advanced on its behalf. Although some constitutional theorists, notably Professor Murphy, have addressed the problem, the Supreme Court has largely ignored it. Cases involving the 18th and 19th amendments provided the justices opportunities to consider whether substantive limits on constitutional amendments warranted the imprimatur of the court, but that tribunal avoided any serious engagement with the issue, even while evincing a lack of sympathy for it. In the 19th century, the original 13th amendment, better known as the Corwin Amendment, likely would have presented a less avoidable target had it not been for the untimely intervention of the Civil War. So we will never know if an amendment removing congressional abolition of slavery from the parameters of Article 5 would itself have been held to be an abuse of the amendment provision. We can only speculate whether the implications of such an entrenchment were sufficiently revolutionary to have given pause to even the most committed defender of a mandatory prerogative. To be sure, American courts at the state level have had some interesting things to say about substantive limits on constitutional change, including one in Alabama which held that any amendments to its constitution had to be consistent with the federal guarantee of a Republican form of government. But my principal purpose in what follows is to draw upon a rich vein of jurisprudential thinking from judiciaries beyond our shores to address the puzzle of the unconstitutional constitutional amendment. If American jurisprudence has been spare in its consideration of the question, other national courts have given it lots of attention and reflection. Indeed, more judicial commentary on the subject may be found in Kenya and Slovenia than from the bench of the American Supreme Court. But it is in India where the debate has been pursued at greatest length, and where one finds the most daring and innovative decisions on the reach of constitutional power. Of course, opinions in India go to great lengths about everything. Still, the patient reader will be amply rewarded by a discussion of constitutional maintenance and change, whose comprehensiveness is unrivaled in world jurisprudence. Rest assured, however, this will not be a discourse on the activism of the Indian Supreme Court. In fact, before arriving at the subcontinent, I want to make a stop in Ireland. This is, after all, the Murphy Lecture, where the categorical rejection of implied limits on constitutional amendments is perhaps as surprising as is the openness to the idea in India. Ultimately, though, my concern is less with the experiences of these countries than it is with the ways in which we theorize about constitutions. For those polities that are constitutional democracies in more than name only, the classic tension between popular governance and restraints on power has been addressed through sovereignty-based arguments that suppose that in the limitations imposed on the expression of the popular will, there exists a more profound manifestation of democratic legitimacy, the constituent power. The conflation of parliamentary and popular sovereignty that allowed the British to function without a written constitution was a fiction that Americans, in establishing a new nation, were required to reject. Their new fiction allowed them to establish a basis for the belief that other institutions, principally the court, could, through the invocation of a written constitution, embody the original popular will and, in this way, legitimately check democratic transgressions. On balance, it has proved to be a useful fiction. But I want to suggest that we reduce our dependency on theorizing predominantly in these terms, not because it has caused us great harm, though it has arguably elsewhere, but because it has sometimes obstructed clear thinking about constitutionalism and specifically constitutional change. Those who have argued for implicit limits on the power of amendment have often invoked the theory of popular sovereignty, and those who have opposed them have just as often found the theory sufficiently supple to provide justification for their counter-arguments. So on one side, we have arguments that use popular sovereignty to establish the immutability of certain constitutional rights, as, for example, in Jeffrey Rosen's claim that by refusing to enforce the flag-burning amendment, a court would defer to rather than thwart the sovereign will of the people. And on the other side, one finds claims like that of Walter Dellinger that an unamendable constitution adopted by a generation long since dead could hardly be viewed as a manifestation of the consent of the governed. Here we hear echoes of James Madison who insisted the people were in fact the fountain of all power and by resorting to them, all difficulties were got over. They could alter constitutions as they pleased. Now, lest you worry about the scope of my ambitions, I hasten to add that challenging government of the people, by the people, and for the people is not my purpose here. Although it may be of more passing interest that the author of that immortal prose once saw fit to refer to popular sovereignty as a pernicious abstraction. You may become skeptical of my disclaimer when I argue later that Edmund Burke, not known as a friend of popular sovereignty, can help to solve the amendment puzzle. It is not, however, this thinker's coolness to the consent of the governed that I embrace. Burke spent a career mainly being correct about the three countries that currently interest me most, India, Ireland, and the United States, and this I alone, I confess, was impossible to ignore. His opposition to the tyrannies of George III in America and Warren Hastings in India were directed at both of these rulers abstract appeals to sovereign rights. Ultimately though, his attractiveness here transcends his notable political track record. It inheres in the clarifying lens he offers into critical issues of constitutional change. I refer specifically to his depiction of the nation as an idea of continuity, his commitment to a politics of identity uncompromised by the destructive lure of geographical morality and his elevation of reform as a strategy to conserve the fundamentals of constitutional structure. But first I want to explore the dilemma of the unconstitutional amendment in two nations where it has given rise to some fascinating and instructive jurisprudence. I begin in a hard place arbour Hill military detention barracks in ireland. there in one thousand nine hundred and thirty four a special tribunal was meeting out summary justice under the terms of an amendment adopted three years earlier to the irish free constitution of one thousand nine hundred and twenty two perhaps the only thing uncontroversial about that amendment was that it was inconsistent with the provisions of the constitution as originally enacted. By authorizing the exercise of judicial power by persons who were not judges appointed in the manner provided by the Constitution, it permitted actions in clear violation of at least two articles clearly set out in the document. Passed as a public safety act, the amendment should not be mistaken for an emergency measure as it conferred upon the executive permanent authority to exercise its special powers whenever in its uncontrolled discretion it deemed it expedient to do so. Thus, the terms of the amendment could be brought into effect during conditions of absolute peace. And under these terms, the tribunals could do just about anything, including sentencing people to death without a semblance of due process. As the one dissenting judge in State v. Ryan pointed out, the more one dwells on its provisions, the more one is staggered by the contemplation of the range of its operations and the scope of the matters authorized by them. The provisions were, according to this judge, the antithesis of the rule of law, bringing Ireland alarmingly close to the rule of anarchy. The objection to this constitutional monstrosity was that it was too radical, fairly to be considered, anything other than a de facto repeal of the Constitution. As an assault on the basic scheme and principles of the document, it could only be upheld under the principle of lex pastoria, according to which the recency of a law establishes its priority over an earlier law of the same type. This also describes the essential process, of course, of parliamentary supremacy, which is a very British way of doing things. And so one might have imagined that its rejection could have been a source of satisfaction for Irish judges seeking to affirm their nationalist bona fides. But only a single justice, Hugh Kennedy, who was in fact a nationalist lawyer and one of the drafters of the Constitution, was so inclined. A lone voice, as he was later to be called, crying out in a positivistic wilderness. The majority justices were unmoved by Justice Kennedy's argument that any purported amendment repugnant to natural law would necessarily be unconstitutional and hence null and void. While not denying that the provision in question would be impossible to justify as an act sanctioned by God, they firmly asserted a judicial incapacity to determine what constitutional features were fundamental and what were not, which left the legislature, within the constraints of correct procedure, total freedom to amend in any way it saw fit in response to the claim that a constitutional authority to amend provisions had to be distinguished from an unauthorized power to repeal them, Justice Fitzgibbon cited the 21st Amendment to the United States Constitution as evidence for the fact that amendments need only add or clarify. Now, should anyone think that the repeal of prohibition left the essential character of the American Constitution unchanged, thus making it a rather feeble example to help legitimate the repeal of due process in the Irish Constitution, he or she would likely have failed to grasp a central point in the majority's ruling. Distinguishing essential features from non-essential ones is ultimately an exercise in imponderables. Moreover, there was no purpose in invoking a spirit embodied in the original Constitution To prevent the enactment of provisions antagonistic to it. And so, given this view of the Constitution, the Court easily reached the one conclusion that was logically required. Quote In cases where the legislature professes to amend the Constitution itself, the only function of the Court is to see that the proposed amendment is within the scope of the power granted by the Constitution and that the requisite forms insisted upon by the Constitution, shall have been duly observed. Among the constitutional theorists writing at this time, the one who would have been least surprised by this result was not an Irishman, but a German, Carl Schmidt. While doubtless preoccupied by his own country's rendezvous with constitutional disintegration, he might well have viewed what was happening across the channel as confirmation of his controversial ideas about the inadequacies of the liberal state. That amendment process in in Ireland culminated in a result that he would have applauded, the transfer of all powers to the executive. But that should not obscure the fact that in doing so it provided a compelling demonstration of what Schmidt saw as the fundamental flaw at the heart of constitutional liberalism. An amendment process functioning in total indifference to itself and its own system of legality was a testament to the blind subordination of substance to form that was the basis of modern constitutionalism, of which, of course, Weimar was exhibit A. In such a system, Schmidt wrote, a purely formal concept of law, independent of all content, is conceivable and tolerable. Schmidt might have recognized in the opinions of the prevailing justices in Ryan. Echoes of his positivist adversaries in the 20s. He would have seen the same conflation of parliamentary and popular sovereignty that could sustain the imagination in visualizing the constituent power whenever constitutional change emerged from the legislature. His own conception of the sovereign will of the people identified it with certain principles of substantive law that could, on the one hand, justify the infamous enabling act of 1933, by which the Nazis commenced their descent into pseudo-legal hell, and on the other, resist the dominant interpretation of Article 76, by which the Constitution could be amended in an infinite variety of ways. If this sounds confusing, I can assure you of at least one more occasion to consider its meaning, this time in India, when in the tumultuous decade of the 70s, Schmidt again provided theoretical support for both sides in a struggle between dictatorial power and the judicial forces arrayed against it. But there is more to do in Ireland, although I want now to move ahead 50 years to a different court under a different constitution. This constitution for the Republic of Ireland was inaugurated with Eamon de Valera's proclamation that if there is one thing more than any other that is clear and shining through this whole constitution, It is the fact that the people are the masters. It included an amendment provision that required a popular referendum as the final step in any alteration of the document. The requirement was satisfied when in 1995, the 14th amendment was adopted, providing a right to receive and impart information relating to abortion services lawfully available outside of the state. A bill passed under its authority was submitted to the court for constitutional review, and as part of the challenge to its legality, the claim was made that the amendment itself was unconstitutional. It was said to be in direct conflict with the Eighth Amendment, which acknowledges the right to life of the unborn. Imagine for a moment the passage in the United States of the flag-burning amendment and the sure objection that it violated the guarantee of free speech under the First Amendment and you have the case that confronted the Irish court. Imagine, too, a further claim that in addition to the allegation concerning conflict between two provisions, the newer amendment should not be allowed to stand because it repudiates principles of natural justice embodied in the Constitution. This recall was the core of Jeffrey Rosen's effort to put into play the idea that if the flag amendment were to be adopted, it deserved to be nullified by the court. A similar effort was undertaken in Ireland, with greater ease, actually, since the natural law commitments of its constitution were, in contrast with the United States, much more explicitly set out in the language of the document. The Council for the unborn, as they were called, maintained that the court could not enforce any provision of a law or amendment that was contrary to natural law. And so the question was sharply posed. Is it permissible for the people to exercise the power of amendment of the Constitution by way of variation, addition, or repeal as permitted by Article 46, unless such amendment is compatible with the natural law and existing provisions of the Constitution, and if they purport to do so, does such an amendment have no effect? Uh, To relieve you of the suspense, I proceed directly to the response in the lead opinion by Justice Hamilton. This court does not accept this argument. Without denying either that there was a conflict between two amendments or that the abortion information amendment ran afoul of constitutionally significant natural law precepts, the court emphatically upheld the 14th Amendment as the legitimate expression of the will of the people. In affirming the supremacy of popular sovereignty, it effectively left unimpeded the the people's right to amend the Constitution. As in the earlier Ryan case, it was the sovereign prerogative that was decisive. The change from one Constitution to another, however significant as an historical transformation to real independence, was of no consequence with respect to intraconstitutional transformation through the amendment process. It mattered not at all that the first transformation was marked by the replacement of parliamentary by popular sovereignty. Ultimately, the same reasoning dictated the same positivist result. Now, to make clear that this result was not an anomaly somehow driven by the special status of the abortion issue in Irish politics, let me quickly call to your attention a trilogy of cases decided in the late 90s, in which the court waxed worshipfully at the altar of people power. If one had to differentiate the voices in the various judicial opinions delivered in these cases, the only distinguishing mark would be the decibel level at which the several justices proclaimed their complete devotion to the demos. Said one, there can be no question of a constitutional amendment properly placed before the people and approved by them being unconstitutional. More emphatically still, no organ of the state, including this court, is competent to review or nullify a decision of the people. And if perchance that failed to get your attention, surely the point will be heard in another justice's quasi-religious invocation. The will of the people as expressed in a referendum providing for the amendment of the Constitution is sacrosanct and, if freely given, cannot be interfered with. The decision is theirs and theirs alone. Well, that's certainly straightforward enough. Of course, the Irish Constitution begins, quote, in the name of the most holy trinity from whom is all authority and to whom as our final end, all actions of men and states must be referred. While there are limits to how seriously to take that language, or indeed, I suppose, the language of any Constitution's preamble. How are we to reconcile the democratic positivism of the Court's decisions with some of the text of the body of the Constitution, language which was clearly inspired by the same divine authority? For example, Article 41 recognizes the family as, quote, a moral institution possessing inalienable and imprescriptible rights, antecedent and superior to all positive law. In Ireland, being a good constitutional positivist means showing a proper respect for natural law. This is not to say that the outcome in the abortion case was wrong, only that the reasoning in it was instructively deficient. The referendum requirement in the 37 Constitution's amendment provisions enabled the court to invoke the constituent authority of the people as a cover for its inability or unwillingness to engage the threshold question of what precisely an amendment is or indeed the antecedent question of what a constitution is. The idea that any duly enacted enacted amendment to the constitution carried with it it the legitimating aura of sovereign authority embodied the brilliant obfuscation of a noble fiction. The flaws in this reasoning would have been recognized by Edmund Burke, who in his tract on popery, opposed an earlier Irish policy by saying, no arguments of policy, reason of state, or preservation of the Constitution can be pleaded in favor of the position that law can derive any authority from its institution merely and independent of the quality of the subject matter. With the court's categorical rejection of implied limits, the morals-laden commitments of Article 41 only serve to remind us that Irish constitutional development had not offered much to blunt the challenge posed by Carl Schmitt. To wit, how can one put, quote, marriage, religion, and private property solemnly under the protection of the Constitution and in the same Constitution offer the legal means for their elimination? If the Irish decisions provide a weak response to Schmitt's critique of proceduralism, insisting that the validity of a formal constitutional change was conditional on its strict adherence to natural law, as was argued in the dissent in Ryan, or in the right to life brief in the abortion information case, or in the claims made by Rosen in objecting to the proposed flag amendment, also fails. It does not explain why a right, even one thought to have a natural endowment, cannot be modified by addition or variation. Modifications, after all, are basic to our enjoyment of rights in civil society. As to the question of repeal, there may very well be grounds for principled resistance to excision of a constitutionally prescribed guarantee, but the claim on behalf of resistance would still have to be made upon a demonstration that the result of the more radical change is at least constitutionally incoherent. By this I mean it would have to show not just that something important has changed, but that the change has in some deep sense disturbed the fundamentals of constitutional identity. To see how this argument unfolds, we need to go to India. It is here It is here that the words of Lincoln's first inaugural take on a significance not generally associated with them. This country, with its institutions, belongs to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they should grow weary of the existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right of amending it or their revolutionary right to dismember or overthrow it. Lincoln did not explore this distinction between the two types of constitutive restructuring, amendment and dismemberment. To elaborate its meaning is to describe the signal achievement of Indian jurisprudence. It is an imperfect achievement made possible only by the dictatorial ambitions of a politician bearing the two most revered names in modern Indian history. Moreover, it is an achievement which, like the success of Indian democracy itself, seems somehow counterintuitive. The Indian Constitution, after all, was designed to accomplish the goal of radical social reconstruction. To this end, as one of the early justices of the Supreme Court pointed out, the Constitution makers visualized that Parliament would be competent to make amendments so as to meet the challenge of the problems which may arise in the course of socioeconomic progress and development of the country. The provision for amending the document was shaped expressly to conform with the Jeffersonian idea that each generation should be free to adapt the Constitution to the conditions of its time. Barring also from the Irish experience, the framers included a section in the Constitution devoted entirely to directive principles of state policy, a section that came to assume a place of prominence in subsequent constitutional development that it never attained in its place of origin. Indeed, the Irish have been a frequent source of inspiration for many Indians, as is amusingly evident in an Indian judge's slightly amended reference to Justice Fitzgibbon's opinion in the Ryan case. Quote, this Eden demi-paradise, this precious stone set in the Silver Sea, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this India, (laughs) <laughs> if it is not that today let us strive to make it so by using law by using law as a flexible instrument of social order add to this effusive embrace of change the rootedness of a legal culture in the british legal tradition and it is natural to suppose a hostile indian reception to the notion of implied constitutional limits Thus, it's not surprising to hear a judge say the power of amendment is in point of quality an adjunct of sovereignty. If so, it does not admit of any limitations. So what then might explain the unexpected receptivity to the idea? While this is not the occasion to explore this uh, question in detail, consider at least one interpretation suggested by my work on Indian secularism. In developing an appropriate constitutional response to a religious presence that is pervasive and deep, Indian judges have proceeded along a path that their American counterparts have studiously avoided. They have applied an essentials of religion test to isolate what is integral to religion from what is not, so that the constitutional goal of social reform will not be impeded by religious practices, for example, polygamy erroneously claiming sanctified theological significance. It may be that this defining feature of Indian church state jurisprudence allows for greater openness to a similar test for amendments, the sort of test that was so categorically rejected by the Irish court. At least it helps to explain why a judge who insists one cannot legally use the Constitution to destroy itself would reach such a conclusion. Or this. Our Constitution is based on a social philosophy, and every social philosophy, like every religion, has two main features, basic and circumstantial. The former remains, but the latter is subject to change. But how to determine what remains and what is subject to change? In its wrestling with the amendment issue, the Indian Supreme Court has struggled mightily with this perplexity. On the one hand, its task here has been less difficult than in confronting the challenge of religion, where the court's authority to make this distinction was always more dubiously asserted. On the other hand, its effort has has been complicated by the fact that the key cases testing the limits of the amendment power have directly implicated the justice's own institutional self-interest. All I can offer today is a very brief outline of the progression of these cases, enough I hope to pursue the logic of the court's rather weakly theorized, if boldly formulated, rationale for its chosen path. Now, unlike the episodic character of the Irish experience, the Indian history with the amendment problem presents itself in the form of a compelling narrative. Indeed, there are at least two stories one can tell the first concerning a decades-long political give-and-take over the place of private property in India, and the second featuring a protracted struggle by the Supreme Court to establish its credibility and independence in the face of repeated attempts to diminish its standing as a significant force in Indian politics. These stories are tightly entwined and are distinguishable only by the theme one chooses to emphasize, in both accounts, they are dominated by the looming presence of Indira Gandhi. The use of the amendment process to insulate certain issues from the oversight of judicial review began in the early days of the republic, long before Mrs. Gandhi's ascendance to power. In two decisions in 1951 and 52, the Supreme Court upheld the power of parliament to amend the Constitution over the claim that process had been used to deprive landowners of fundamental rights guaranteed in the document. These rulings stood up rather well until 1967 and the landmark decision of Golak Nath versus the state of Punjab, in which a divided court announced that duly enacted amendments could not be permitted to render a constitutional right unenforceable. Technically, the decision did not invalidate the amendments in question, as the court issued a prospective judgment, essentially putting parliament on notice that the days of its amendatory interference with fundamental rights were over, but the intense political reaction to the court's move left little doubt that something very important had occurred. The opinions in the case were noteworthy more for having established a foundation for debating the meaning of constitutional change than for the quality of the judge's own initial contributions, which were for the most part underdeveloped the main opinion by the Chief Justice introduced the critical question of what the word amend actually means. His preference for a limited understanding must be seen in connection with his main point, which was that fundamental rights are given a transcendent position under our Constitution and are kept beyond the reach of Parliament. Not surprisingly, his natural rights claim, he called them primordial rights, provoked some Holmesian grumblings among his dissenting colleagues, one of them quoting the American justice to the effect that the Constitution is an experiment, as all life is an experiment. No reference was made to Justice Hugo Black's memorable denunciation of natural rights as an incongruous excrescence upon the Constitution. Although when viewed comparatively, it is clear that however suspect may be its descriptive value in the United States, this unappealing appellation has more resonance in India. This became evident in the nineteen seventy three case of Kesavananda versus State of Kerala, arguably India's most important constitutional case. Golak Nath had provided Indira Gandhi with a splendid issue for a populist campaign that ended in electoral triumph in nineteen seventy one. Her substantial victory quickly translated into passage of no less than four constitutional amendments, one of which, the 24th, explicitly overturned the earlier decision on fundamental rights, extending to Parliament authority to adopt amendments that were immune from judicial review. War with Pakistan precipitated a declaration of presidential emergency and subsequent nationalization, which in turn led to the litigation that ended in the landmark judgment in Casavananda. Its massive content and numerous cross-cutting opinions are not conducive to easy recapitulation. But as best I can determine as a reader of all its 800 pages, the Court affirmed the authority of Parliament to amend constitutional provisions involving fundamental rights while rejecting its authority to place statutes enacted to implement the Constitution's directive principles beyond the power of judicial review. It thus reversed Golaknath, but narrowly asserted its authority to invalidate a constitutional amendment that was in defiance of the basic structure of the Indian Constitution. And so the era of natural rights in India was short-lived. Should any legitimacy attach to the idea of implied limits to the amendment power, it would not be found in the natural rights argument. While there were differences on the court over epistemological questions concerning such rights, a broad consensus emerged that fundamental rights are given by the Constitution, and therefore they can be abridged or taken away by the amending process of the Constitution itself. A characteristically Indian objection expressed what is, for better or worse, a reality of our time. Quote, Natural law has been a sort of religion with many political and constitutional thinkers, but it has never believed in a single godhead. It has a perpetually growing pantheon. The pantheon is not a heaven of peace. Its gods are locked in internecine conflict. Notice that this rejection of a rights-based bar to first-order constitutional change did not culminate in the acceptance of the government's extraordinary argument to the court that Parliament could do anything it wanted through the amendment power, no matter how revolutionary or destructive. To be sure, the ghost of Holmes returned, and with a vengeance, but only to a small minority of the justices, among whom Justice Chandrachud was the most expansive. Quote, if the people acting through the Parliament want to put the crown of a king on a head they like, or, if you please, on a head they dislike, Let them have that liberty. As Justice Holmes said, when the people want to do something, I can't find anything in the Constitution expressly forbidding them to do it. I say, whether I like it or not, God damn it, let them do it. I should say, parenthetically, that a further comment by this judge touched me personally. He said, I am am quite clear that I have no use for the advice of Walter Burns. With whom I studied, that since there can be no freedom to end freedom, even if the people desire to enslave themselves, the Supreme Court must act undemocratically in order to preserve democracy. But these sentiments ultimately lost out to the proponents of basic structure, a doctrine that might not have made it very far beyond the ruling in this case had it not been for the overreaching of the Indian Prime Minister. On June 12, 1975, a high court in Mrs. Gandhi's electoral constituency upheld criminal charges against her for the crime of electoral fraud. Two weeks later, faced with the possibility of removal from office, she introduced India's first domestically driven emergency regime, which quickly evolved into a harsh and unremitting dictatorship. Among its first acts were a series of constitutional amendments that were, shall we say, unusual. One of them, the 39th Amendment, prevented any judicial inquiry into the election of the Prime Minister. As one noted Indian scholar remarked, nowhere in the history of mankind has the power to amend the Constitution thus been used. Another, the 38th, Shielded from judicial review, any laws adopted during the emergency that might conceivably impinge upon fundamental rights. Gandhi's claim was Schmittian in the extreme. In essence, the constituent power as an expression of the sovereign will of the people was all-embracing and at once judicial, executive, and legislative. It was such an extravagant, extravagant claim that it accomplished what all previous debate over property-related amendments had not succeeded in doing, establish the legitimacy of the unconstitutional constitutional amendment. It was even too much for the aforementioned Holmesian Justice, who would appear to have experienced an epiphany in concluding that in the face of these events, that the Constitution could indeed be subverted by revolutionary methods, and that constitutional provisions should not, after all, be the vehicle for such change. While Mrs. Gandhi's election was prudently upheld, the court decisively repudiated the 38th and 39th Amendments. Quote, the common man's sense of justice sustains democracies, wrote another of the Prime Minister's expected judicial supporters. And the outrage provoked by these travesties must be given due regard in determining the attributes of basic structure. In particular, these provisions were a blatant negation of the right of equality and were in sharp contravention of the most basic postulate of the Constitution. Hence, following Kesafananda, they could not stand. Of course, one could question just how meaningful these developments were in light of the unusual circumstances that brought them about. That is why the last of the cases I will briefly mention, this time involving a government takeover of a failing business, is so important. In 1980, the court decided Minerva Mills v. Union of India, better known as the sick textiles case. We have our sick chickens, they have their sick textiles. In which part of yet another amendment, the 42nd, were invalidated in a ringing affirmation of the basic structure doctrine. The amendment represented Mrs. Gandhi's last strike at the court, including the provocative declaration that, quote, no amendment shall be called into question in any court on any ground. That was part of the amendment. Again, it was left to Justice Chandrachu to articulate what he called the theme song of Kesavananda, for which he was now fully prepared to become a part of the chorus. Amend, as you may, even the solemn document which the founding fathers have committed to your care, for you know best the needs of your generation. But the Constitution is a precious heritage, therefore you cannot destroy its identity. Frederick Schauer has asked, What makes a constitution constitutional? Nothing, he answered. Nor does or can anything make a constitution unconstitutional. The story in India I just outlined provides another answer, which I want to consider, fully mindful of the fact that much of the jurisprudence that emerged from it was forged in the extreme circumstances of emergency power and that much of what was innovative about it flowed from the court's own institutional needs. I suppose it might be sufficient to conclude that countries should just follow the Brazilian example and preclude the amendment or the enactment of amendments during periods of emergency. But I think more can be learned from the account. Moreover, I believe the rather extreme conditions that provided the context for what judicially transpired are, in fact, useful in clarifying the stakes in the debate over implied limits. Hence, we should not be surprised to learn that it was the German experience that offered the Indian judges guidance in their extended parrying of Indira Gandhi. She, of course, had a lot to learn from it as well, if alas, from an earlier decade. But both the judges and the Prime Minister could find in the person of Carl Schmidt a source of ideas for their conflicting agendas for that enigmatic theorist is at once the guru of emergency power and the proponent of the notion that there are fundamental principles which limit the amendment power. Indeed, his argument that the amendment power was not an expression or reincarnation of the original constituent power and therefore limited by its original mandate was incorporated into the jurisprudence of the basic law of the Federal Republic. While never actually invalidating a constitutional amendment, the post-war German court had declared such an act conceptually possible and had expressly invoked the nation's recent past to affirm that never again would formal legal means be used to legalize a totalitarian regime. Now, if proximity to the abyss has a way of concentrating the mind on the essentials of constitutionalism, Judicial enforcement of, of, of implied limits to the amendment power should not rest solely on reasons fashioned for the, for the dire circumstances of the worst case. For Schmidt, it was the doctrine of popular sovereignty, traceable to the French Revolution, that animated his views on the subject, just as it did his defense of executive dictatorship. Perhaps it was the tragically induced awareness of the multiple ends to which the doctrine could serve that led the German court to emphasize as a basis for the conceptual possibility it had countenanced the further idea of preserving the inner unity of the Constitution. Thus, a constitutional amendment could be subject to nullification to the extent that it was responsible for transforming the document to which it was added into something fundamentally incoherent. Of the raft of reasons adduced by the Indian court in the reams of paper it devoted to the analysis of the unconstitutional constitutional amendment, the one that stands out is a version of the coherence requirement, the need to preserve the Constitution's identity. If anything, however, it is a more demanding formulation than the German test. Thus, the incongruities and inconsistencies that could lead to a finding of constitutional incoherence might only mean that the document's identity has been obscured in a manner that casts doubt on its fundamental character and commitments. And, of course, the exigencies of constitution-making often leads to an original constitution's incoherence in the sense that necessary compromise produces contradictions affecting its inner unity even before any subsequent amending hand is laid upon it that is certainly the american story and as walter murphy has shown in discussing the 14th amendment in its finest moment article 5 served the nation well by enabling its fundamental law to begin the process of working itself pure as As Walter has also reminded us, reforming a constitution is different than reforming a constitution. The latter one might say extends beyond incoherence and implicates identity. With the assistance of the Oxford English Dictionary, I'm referring when I speak of identity to that condition or fact that makes something unique, especially as a continuous, unchanging property throughout its existence. As it has evolved in Indian jurisprudence, the meaning of a constitutional amendment has essentially conformed to the OED's definition of identity. Thus, in Kesavananda, Justice Khanna, the author of the decision's most important opinion, wrote, the word amendment postulates that the old constitution survives without loss of its identity, despite the change. And it continues even though it has been subjected to alterations. In Minerva Mills, Justice Bhagwati, one of the last holdouts against the idea of implied limits, argued, if by constitutional amendment, Parliament were granted unlimited power of amendment, it would cease to be an authority under the Constitution but would become supreme over it because it would have, it would have power to alter the entire Constitution including its basic structure, and even to put an end to it by totally changing its identity. As John Finn has reminded me, this distinction is lucidly elaborated in the reflections of Calvin and Hobbes, that's not John and Thomas, who use the term transmogrification to refer to transformations that cannot be squared with a pre-existing order. The question of constitutional identity is, of course, much more easily asserted than enforced. Given the the exceedingly high probability that any such assertion will be vigorously contested, judges are understandably reluctant to enforce it. In addition, as the provost of Princeton University has observed, Isolating the mechanism that makes invocations of identity so persuasive would take us deep into philosophical waters. While, as Chris Eisgruber also noted, a political teacher might use arguments about collective identity to motivate people to conform their behavior to some conception of justice, the safer route, we might say, may be to avoid these waters entirely. Thus, in Coleman versus Miller, Justice Black said of the Article 5 process that, quote, it is political in its entirety from submission until an amendment becomes part of the Constitution and is not subject to judicial guidance, control, or interference at any point. It is worth recalling that the judicial practice of invoking this political question doctrine to avoid difficult constitutional questions began in Luther v. Borden, which was in essence a case of political identity in which the Supreme Court refused to say what it was that the Republican Guarantee Clause guaranteed. When several years later Charles Sumner suggested that Republican identity was incompatible with slavery and hence the federal government should do what the Constitution commanded and remove those governments that supported it, his arguments were easily defeated by John C. Calhoun and the logic of Luther versus Borden. Very different was the result in India when in 1994 the Supreme Court upheld the authority of the central government in dismissing the elected governments in three states for their complicity in undermining the polity's commitment to secularism. The provision under which this was done had been modeled after the American Guarantee Clause. The court's main concern was Indian constitutional identity, And so following Kesavananda, secularism was declared essential to the unchangeable basic structure of the Constitution. But here, as in the earlier case, the court's boldness in defending against the assault on constitutional foundations was not matched by its effort in articulating a theory by which the properties of a protected domain of identity might be known. Moreover, the determination to preserve this domain begs the question of why, as an axiom of constitutional policy, this precious heritage must be shielded from destruction. To say your constitution is what it has been is no sufficient defense for those who say it is a bad constitution. These last words belong to Edmund Burke, whose reflections on the dramatic changes in one country have unfortunately obscured his decades of engagement in the transformation of others, including our own. In South Asia, where some said he stubbornly, I prefer tenaciously, championed the rights of Indians against the numerous depredations of the British Empire, he is given more regard as a visionary thinker, albeit one whose gaze was never fully diverted from the past." There are approving references in the Kesavananda ruling to Burke's famous injunction about the need to accommodate change in uh, in order to conserve what is truly important. But in the development of their ideas on constitutional identity and basic structure, the Indian justices could have gotten more mileage from one whose unique Irish perspective led him to condemn the injustices done to their ancestors. Indeed, Burke's immersion in the struggles of Ireland and India had a lot to do with what I would characterize as his dual-track understanding of constitutional identity. By this, I mean that there are at the most basic level certain attributes of the rule of law that are the necessary condition for generic constitutional governance. What the important American legal philosopher Lon Fuller called the inner morality of law is a fair representation of Burke's unequivocal denial of constitutional identity to a rulership that fails to meet its minimum requirements. These are the requirements of due process in the Magna Carta sense, not the more contemporary version of substantive guarantees. In fact, in arguing for Fox's East India bill, Burke said it was intended to inform the Magna Carta of Hindustan. To this end, his impeachment prosecution of Warren Hastings for the latter's maladministration of India was premised on the idea that, quote, the laws of morality are the same everywhere. This did not mandate a particular form of government as it did for the theoreticians of natural rights whom Burke often scolded. But it did mean that to be properly identified for what it was, a constitution would have to be able, in Fuller's words, to save us from the abyss. It is unlikely that Indira Gandhi's amendments, or for that matter, the 17th Amendment to the Irish Free Constitution, would have satisfied Burke's requirement. One of the justices in the Indira Gandhi case, in speaking of the principles of the rule of law, pointed out that they must vary from country to country depending on the provisions of the Constitution. Burke's second track concerns this variability, which is about the identity of a particular Constitution. In his speech on reform of representation, delivered just one year before his better-known speech on the East India Bill, Burke explained why he favored the idea of the prescriptive Constitution, because he said a nation is not an idea of local extent, but it is an idea of continuity, which extends in time as well as in numbers and in space. And this is a choice not of one day or one set of people, not a tumultuary and giddy choice. It is a deliberate election of ages and generations. It is a constitution made by the peculiar circumstances, occasions, tempers, dispositions, and moral, civil, and social habitudes of the people which disclose themselves only in a long space of time. It is a vestment which accommodates itself to the body. It is tempting, though mistaken, to think of Burke as a precursor of modern moral relativism, even if excerpts like this illuminate why some have held that view. His emphasis on particularities and prescription and on the Constitution as something that evolves to fit the circumstances and habits of a people, is surely suggestive of a moral sensibility strongly deferential to entrenched cultural norms. But the deference was not unqualified, as illustrated in Burke's rejection of of Hastings' main argument for his morally questionable actions in India. Hastings had framed a defense of geographical morality which held that whatever happened in India was compatible with local customs and therefore could not be judged by external standards. Burke was categorical in rejecting this moral perspective, arguing in response that the governance of Indians had to respect the same universal laws of of right conduct that applied to Englishmen. Necessary for Burke was a prudential balancing of the universal and the particular. The foundations of government are in the constitution laid in political convenience and in human nature, either as that nature is universal or as it is modified by local habits. While there were preconditions for a constitution to exist, the nation as an idea of continuity meant that constitutions had to be viewed as embodiments of unique histories and circumstances. I never was wild enough to conceive, he said, that one method would serve the whole, that the natives of Hindustan and those of Virginia could be ordered in the same manner. The accommodation of the vestment to the body implied a tolerance for diverse practices. Abstract theory could not dictate constitutional form or identity. One can debate whether Burke was too permissive in the span of constitutional variability he imagined as compatibil- compatible with legitimate rule. My only point is that the Burkean understanding of constitutions as artifacts of time and experience supplies the necessary background assumption for Justice Kana's critically important criterion for the legitimacy of an amendment, that the old constitutions survive without loss of its identity. And so we might think of an amendment as a new chapter in an ongoing constitutional story. How well it fits the existing narrative will be a factor in assessing its quality. Like the 14th Amendment in Ireland, or the proposed flag-burning amendment in the United States, which raised concerns about coherence, or what Ronald Dworkin refers to as integrity, but if the lack of fit is so extreme as to either call into question whether whether the edition has subverted the genre itself, for example, is it still a novel, or to lead one to conclude that a key element of the plot line has been disregarded, then the legitimacy of the undertaking might well be placed in doubt. Constitutionally, these two possibilities translate into first and second order amendment defects. Both are serious, even if the culturally contingent elements of the latter reduce somewhat the urgency of the need to impose implied limits. Thus, an amendment that assaulted the very foundations of constitutionalism would be direr than one that challenged some constitutional practice or tradition of particular importance to a given regime. I want to emphasize, however, that it is not the introduction of significant and far-reaching change that is, per se, objectionable. Rather, it is the content of this change, insofar as it implicates the question of constitutional identity. Indeed, Burke, whose resistance to change has often been exaggerated, Riley pointed out in that same speech on representation that when a man says he only means a moderate and temperate reform, What he really means to do is as little good as possible. At bottom, wrote one of the dissenting Indian judges in Kesavananda, the controversy in these cases is as to whether the meaning of the Constitution consists in its being or its becoming. He then called attention to the country's national symbol, the chakra, which is the wheel that appears on the Indian flag. It signifies, he said, that the Constitution is a becoming, a moving equilibrium. Hence, he concluded that true democracy and true republicanism are incompatible with judicial review of constitutional amendments. His error, I believe, was in creating a false dichotomy between being and becoming. As Burke reminded us, by preserving the method of nature and the conduct of the state in what we improve, we are never wholly new. In what we retain, we are never wholly obsolete. What a constitution becomes can never be considered separate from what it has been. It is, in Burke's words, a deliberate election of ages and generations. But this justice's further point was well taken. He was concerned that an expansion of the court's review function to incorporate the legality of constitutional amendments might blunt the people's vigilance, articulateness, and effectiveness. That concern should not be taken lightly. Indeed, I want to conclude this lecture by quoting Judge Leonard Hand's Han's wise and eloquent thought about self-government and the judiciary. This much I think I do know, that a society so riven that the spirit of moderation is gone, no court can save. That a society where that spirit flourishes, no court needs save. That in a society which evades its responsibility by thrusting upon the courts the nurture of that spirit, that spirit in the end will perish. In revisiting the puzzle of the unconstitutional constitutional amendment, I do not want to leave you with the impression that its solution lies in a blind faith in the courts to save us from the immoderate excesses of the amendment process. After demonstrating that there are applications of that process that do exceed acceptable limits, it may be prudent to then rely on the people to see that they are not passed. But such reliance requires knowing why there are limits and why this matters. On the other hand, The degree to which we choose to endow courts with a judicial responsibility over constitutional amendments should depend at least in part on the relative ease or difficulty of altering the document. While Han's point is, I would think, universally applicable, the provision for straightforward amendability in some polities increases the likelihood that in these places, deeply problematic change could occur while the spirit of moderation remained generally prevalent. Whereas in the American case, amending the Constitution is such a formidable undertaking, there should perhaps be a stronger presumption against the exercise of judicial review than, say, in India, where the adoption of amendments is only slightly more challenging than the enactment of ordinary law. In principle, however, it might be desirable to keep the option open if for no other reason than that this could serve to remind politicians and citizens that constitutional change is inherently bounded. But if ever confronted with the felt need to exercise this option, sober heads might well wonder whether it was any longer worth doing.
0: very much, Professor Jacobson. Uh, it's a tradition with the Madison program to take the first question from any students who might have them before opening up for questions more generally, so let me provide that opportunity first, and then if not, we'll call for questions from the general audience. And we'll mm-hmm. go to Professor Sheffield.
2: Right.
1: Well, uh, I don't think it does very well because ultimately it still draws that clear line between procedure and substance. Although it may, I mean, this is one of the problems I've always had with Lanfala, whom I love as a legal philosopher, is that his insistence that if one is forced to do it, the things the right way, one will do the right thing. And I'm not sure that history proves that point to be the case. And so therefore, that Colombian uh, solution, it seems to me, still does not get beyond the Schmittian observation about liberal constitutionalism understood purely in that procedural procedural way. Now, given given the way most systems work uh, around the world, as as you well know, uh, this would be great progress if indeed uh, those uh, with the responsibility for making such changes did conform uh, to procedures is exactly set out. And I would consider that probably an advance for most places. I don't think, however, it uh, ultimately gets at the problem that I'm dealing with tonight uh, in the uh, distinctions drawn between the sort of procedural and, 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 and the substantive. Because all of what is, as you describe it, constitutionally prescribed in that Colombian solution uh, has been doctrinally achieved uh, by the uh, by the Irish courts uh, and by uh, uh, some of the Indian, ultimately the Indian dissenters. And uh, that may indeed be the way ultimately uh, to go because, after all, the, the dilemma of determining what substance is critical and essential uh, to constitutional identity is a formidable um, problem. But uh, at least as presenting it as a theoretical problem for constitutional Democracy and constitutional, constitutionalism generally, I don't think that that solution would actually address the issue that concerns me. Yeah, I can. <laughs> Well, the spirit of my last uh, comment uh, uh, really was reflecting on the, 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 the problem of, of what such an excess would mean uh, uh, in terms of the society's development beyond uh, the kind of moderation that constitutional government requires. And it could very well be the case uh, in circumstances where amending is a relatively simple matter uh, that uh, these excesses uh, are not fundamentally transformative, but represent, you know, the spur of the moment or the exigencies of the occasion uh, that then ought to be viewed precisely in those uh, precisely in those terms. Ken, um, you know,
3: talking about the how I was um, intrigued by the Jeffrey Rosen example of flag burning amendment. And, right.
1: Well, well, I mean, one of one of the things I suppose that I'm really seeking to do here is to steer a middle course that doesn't avoid, as you I think rightly point out, the problem of abstractions, but still steer a middle course between the abstraction um, uh, argument, which is fundamentally based upon a kind of traditional natural rights assertion, as Rosen did in the flag uh, burning on the one hand and the, uh, the similar abstraction of the popular sovereignty argument that leads to a kind of democratic positivism uh, on, on the other. And that uh, uh, the, um, uh, the focus on identity, though at certain points it intersects with other abstractions, whether you want to call it uh, history, uh, or even indeed the kind of minimalist understanding of natural rights that's at the basis of Law and Fuller's solution, but still, the effort is to try to uh, to, to root it in something, um, uh, if you will, facts on the ground. Uh, those facts might be. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Those, those facts might be a function of history and tradition. But given the way history and tradition, for example, is used in the interpretation, say, in the 14th Amendment in this country, uh, I would be reluctant simply to leave it at that. Which is why I think. It's necessary, and I think it's necessary to invoke Burke at this point, not necessary, but desirable to do so, and to pursue a kind of dual track uh, in which the reliance on that history and tradition is nevertheless bounded by certain minimal requirements, which I designate as a sort of generic constitutionalism. Uh, so that there's an identity associated with the phenomenon of constitutionalism, uh, which is the low and solid ground upon which all constitutions that rightly bear that title must exemplify and and demonstrate. Uh, But beyond that, then, there are the particulars of of regimes uh, where, uh, for example, the Indian emphasis on secularism secularism is critical uh, to the constitutional identity of that place uh, and fundamentally illuminates uh, why India uh, is India. Without it, uh, it is, in, in a certain sense, unimaginable. That is to say, one could not recognize its identity. And if one were to give that up, it would be a, a very critical uh, uh, abandonment of something essential uh, to the constitutional meaning of the place. Uh, but it's necessary, it seems to me, to meld the constitutional meaning of the place with the constitutional definition uh, of the genre itself, and I think that that 's uh, the kind of bridge that Burke offers between, if you will, the abstract argument uh, and the uh, more historically grounded one. Walter. <laughs> I, I agree. The I agree. And I say
3: it
1: to, uh, no, I didn't put them together. They were in the question. I think about it. Uh, right, right. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I mean that was a legitimate concern. Of course, I'm sympathetic, having written about Lincoln precisely in that in that way. Although I must say, after the last several weeks in this country, I'm, I'm, some some of the reservations that always lurked there with regard to with regard to uh, um, breaking down that judicial monopoly over interpretation have concerned me deeply, uh, and I suspect would concern you too when it's uh, in, when it's applied to the amendment process. Right. Right.
3: judges uh, I don't
1: know no, I I understand that. Uh, and, and Right. Now, so the the, the citizen dimension, I only hinted at yeah. uh, towards the end, but the other aspects of it, which involves kind of an institutional confrontation, is really built into the system. Uh, I mean, uh, the alternative, for example, in the Indian uh, case, would be what uh, allowing the prime minister to have a say in the constitutionality of this amendment, which in fact she asserted. Yes. But we can see the uh, the result uh, in those in those Are in those circumstances. Right. Mm-hmm. In
3: a sense the mm-hmm. uh except for the courts
1: to perpetrate be trouble they had cuz it was a choice. Right. If they hadn't spoken that choice would have be been mm-hmm. especially because she locked up a lot of the opposition parliamentarians. Indeed she did. And she did, and in fact uh locking up the opposition parliamentarians affected the procedural correctness of yes, the amendment so process. Say, uh, it's something that we're not perhaps used to here, but it, indeed uh, there are places where that is not uh, uh, altogether uh, unusual, and presumably any procedural correctness would be seen to have been violated by by, by the by the uh, uh, in, incarcerating of those with whom you disagree. not born again i can
3: assure
1: you. yes and you took good care of him <laughs> thank you
2: but <Whatever. laughs> you're <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: That was not ratified by the got the So they were not in the Union. How could they ratify constitution If they were in the to much
1: To judicial amendment of the Constitution by, in other speaking words, taking taking it. taking liberties, in other words, yeah, with, well, exactly. with, with with the Senate. You know, you know, you're speaking mostly formally tonight, but realistically, our Constitution has been amended by the judges. And I want to know is
3: your argument here you
1: principle know, to forward establish the parameters of judicial amendment? Well, I, I, I imagine they could be applied yeah. in terms of evaluating the substance of a judicial ruling.
3: Uh,
1: here. <laughs> this is, This is a classroom uh, habit of mine marching around. In of okay. Um, uh, yes, uh, certainly in, in the way we assess a judicial interpretation uh, as to whether it has exceeded all proper bounds, uh, one might, it seems to me, profit from some application of of identity as ultimately formulated and of course I'm just hinting at what that kind of an examination would require but there of course uh, as our own history uh, indicates uh, uh, if such a determination is made uh, that indeed the uh, the judicial amendment uh, has gone beyond what is appropriate or reasonable, there is an explicitly constitutional recourse available to the people. Difficult though it may be, uh, it has been invoked on, on, on some occasions. And that would be the, the difference. The unique aspect uh, to the amendment problem uh, is that it involves the invocation presumably of, the, well, the invocation of the constituent power, uh, which is distinguishable, of course, from any exercise of judicial review, uh, uh, the invocation of a constituent power, which arguably expresses uh, the original popular will expressed in the sovereign act that created the Constitution. Now, my argument requires, uh, at minimum, a distinction between that subsequent amendation, which I don't think is an expression of that of that. Uh, notion of popular sovereignty, or any reasonable notion of popular sovereignty, uh, it's, a, it's at best a legal fiction, which is, to use Lincoln's word, pernicious in this, in this, in this context. Uh, surely, what the courts are doing, though, do not uh, do not equate with anything as exalted as an expression of the will of the people. Though uh, the argument has been made that when the court expresses itself, it is. Expressing the will of the Constitution. Uh, you know, Chief Justice Hughes', Hughes, Hughes line, which we, we most of us find problematic, even if we can identify ad, ad, uh, with its realist core. But that, that distinction, of course, means uh, that we can override the judicial uh, will uh, through some subsequent amendation that is, manned, or at least provided for by the Constitution explicitly. So it once was. Uh,
3: yes. Well, mm-hmm. in
0: Yeah. So it would be appropriate, I think, if we ended with uh, Professor Murphy's uh, comments. And you just I, said them. I know. <laughs> that's why I, was, I wasn't asking for more. Those were the comments. I was comments. saying those were, those were them, and we certainly enjoyed them longer. Um, but I hope you will agree with me, and I hope Professor Murphy agrees with me. This, I think, lecture today uh, certainly did him to do justice uh, to connecting two topics that uh, Professor Murphy was himself quite interested in, and with the kind of richness and depth and sophistication uh, that I think uh, would certainly uh, bear up to the namesake of this lecture series. I hope you'll help me uh, thank uh, Professor Jacobson one more time for joining us just upstairs for a reception.